Today is about big waves and hard hearts, and it's Mark 6. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 45, and we'll see where we end up, <laughs> says the preacher. Big waves and hard hearts. I want you to hold a place in Mark and also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's locate those two texts and let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your loving mercy in our lives. It's so awesome that we can call you Father and that you call us your beloved children. You so love the world that you gave your son. And you say that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. It's amazing that you want to be our father. In a world that's so confused on so many levels, this brings clarity and hope to us, Lord, to know that you are our father, that you care about us. In fact, the Bible teaches you've adopted us into your forever family. And we're just grateful to be your children this morning, grateful to know that you love us with a love that is unfathomable in so many ways. And we just pray, Lord, as we study your word now, as we get into the Bible, get the Bible deep into us, Lord. This is not, a, an edu- uh, this is not just an educational exercise, not just to read and study the Bible. Let it mold and shape us into who you want us to be. And for those who are here who have had good fathers or their fathers are sitting next to them or they can think of fond memories of a father, I pray that today would be a day to honor fathers as well, Lord. Those that we can speak to who are yet with us and alive because life is so short. Let us take advantage of saying thank you. And even those who have been father figures to us, let us be quick to say thank you for the time that they've invested into our lives. We just want to lay this time at your feet and pray that you'd bless it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 1 with me. Paul's writing to a largely Gentile church. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Paul's recounting the wilderness wanderings of the Exodus. All were baptized into Moses, 1 Corinthians 10, 2, in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, that's the manna. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, I want you just to park there for a second. When Paul is recounting the wilderness wanderings of Israel, he is saying that the presence of Christ was there. The angel of the Lord was there. The glory cloud was there. God Almighty was there, and Jesus Christ is God. And so Paul is making the point that when the Israelites went through the wilderness, Jesus was there. However, it didn't go well. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Everybody mark verse 6 in your Bible. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Now he'll go through a list of things that they did to blow it. They got into idolatry, verse 7. Immorality, verse 8. They tested the Lord, verse 9. They spent a lot of their time grumbling, verse 10. Verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, in light of Israel's bad example here, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And it happened to Israel, God's people as well. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, also that you, personalize this, may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Go back to Mark chapter 6. When you read the Old Testament stories, they have great validity for our lives. Those stories are intended to point you to the truth and help you to avoid potholes and mistakes but the old saying is true most of us decide in life somewhere along the line to learn the hard way why do we do that I don't know it just seems to be within our human nature someone can tell us the stove is hot 
but we still have something in us that wants to touch it just to prove it, right? And that's what parents do. They warn, they, they encourage, they exhort, and we get a lot of this from children as they're growing up. I know, I know, I know. And our response is, no, you don't know. <laughs> you think you know. Right? And when parents are exhorting, what we're trying to do is help our children to avoid mistakes. But obviously, the Bible is filled with honesty about the mistakes that were made. But hopefully, we can learn from our mistakes. And we don't remain hard-hearted. And that was the problem with Israel. And you might be wondering about my title, and I'll explain it in a moment. The problem with Israel was hard-heartedness, which equals unbelief. You might want to write that down if you're a note taker. Hard-heartedness is always a way to describe unbelief. When you have a soft heart, it means you're pliable. It means you're open. It means your heart here is the idea of your will, your intellect, your emotions, your decision-making processes. You say, God, I want to be soft to your ways. But when your heart is hard, you become like this impenetrable shield. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to discuss it. You don't want to hear the word of God. That's why a lot of people, when you talk to them, they say, I don't want to hear that. Why don't you want to hear it? Because sometimes I think there's frankly fear in some people that something might penetrate them. And sometimes that comes because life has thrown us some tough things. Even with fathers, I know it can bring out a lot of difficulty and you know, all the things that maybe we hoped for didn't come to pass. So one of the key verses here, this is the title, is found in verse 52. We'll jump ahead for a second. <clears throat> Mark 6, 52 says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. What's the incident of the loaves? <clears throat> the incident of the loaves is the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember the apostles? Lord, send them away. How can we feed this many people? What good, what good will this little brown bag lunch of the little lad do among so many people? And Jesus fed the 5,000 plus women and children, but it is clear that even after that miracle, his own 12 apostles did not get it. More specifically, I don't think they really understood yet who he was. He was the same one who was with Israel of old in the wilderness, and they did the same thing that the apostles are doing now. And as we've watched Jesus in the Gospels, we've seen him do thousands upon thousands of healing miracles. A couple of stories that take prominence in, the, in this particular Gospel is the woman with the flow of blood for how many years? Twelve years. She touches the hem of his garment and the bleeding stops. I told you on a sub-level, there's a message for Israel. If you will reach out in faith, I will stop the bleeding. Then he's on his way to a little girl. And she was how old? 12 years old. And he goes and he says, she's just sleeping. Stop your boo-hooing, if I, I can put it that way. He clears out the room and he says, little girl, little lamb, arise. And she rises up at 12 years old. And then he feeds the 5,000 plus women and children. And how many baskets do they pick up? 12, and this message keeps appearing over and over again. And here's what it is. Jesus is retracing the fallen footsteps of the nation. He's going to do for them what they failed to do. He is going to fulfill the law. He's going to trust his father. He's going to lay down his life. Where we failed, he succeeds. And his perfection is given to us when we place faith in Christ. But it's not just about the nation. It is also about the 12 that have decided to leave everything and follow him. They are representative of the nation, if you will, that fell in the wilderness. But those 12 are still 12 individuals. And God is doing a work in their life. And they still haven't gotten it yet. And they've already been through one storm. Do you remember? He was sleeping on the cushion. And the storm raged. And they went and woke him up. And they said, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus said, hush to the ocean. Be still, quiet. <laughs> when I get woken up, that's usually my attitude as well. Quiet. <laughs> so the ocean, shh, 
calm down. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, where is your faith? Why is your faith so little? And then they said, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Listen to those words. Who is this? Have they gotten it yet? I don't think so. And when you don't get it, God has a way of sending additional storms into your life. Can I get a witness? Hmm. How many of you have grown the most in calm waters? Raise up your hand. Oh, a few of you. A few of you don't want another storm. How many of you have grown the most in storms? Okay. How many of you do not want to raise your hand? You want to be neutral right now because you are afraid that God will hold you accountable for that hand going up. I feel you. I'm with you, you wimps. Anyway, <laughs> just kidding. Look, I stopped praying for patience years ago. How many of you prayed for patience one time and then said, that's it? <laughs> no more. Do not pray that way. And if someone, if you're in a circle of people and someone else is praying for patience, release their hand. Because some of that may spill over to you. You don't want that. Their hearts, get this, they saw all these miracles. Now I'm talking about the 12, but you can link this to the nation. You know, do you ever read the, the Old Testament and you see, okay, let's see, 10 plagues, the last one is the Passover, the blood of the lamb, God leads them out, they got all the parting gifts from Egypt, it's pretty cool. The Egyptians are burying their firstborn, they're going out, the glory cloud, he parts the sea, he closes the sea on the Egyptian army, he feeds them with the manna, he brings water from the rock, and what did they do? And you're like, what's wrong with these people? Until you take a look at yourself. Until you go, ouch, how many things has God shown me? How faithful has God been to me? And the 12 representing the nation have the same problem. They've seen a ton of stuff. They've watched Jesus do miracle after miracle. In fact, at this point, he's even imbued his power into them so they can do it. And they've come back and reported to him early in Mark 6 that they did miracles, that they were able to cure the sick, that they were able to cast out demons. They were excited about it. And yet, they still don't seem to grasp who he is. And a lot of us are there. A lot of us have been walking with the Lord for decades, but sometimes we feel like, man, we're still back in elementary school. Sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, haven't I figured this out yet? I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years. You'd think I'd have this one down. But this is our humanity. And this is partly the reason for storms. Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. But God said of Israel, they are stiff-necked people, a hard-hearted people. How much do I have to show them until they trust me? Mark 6, 45, we pick up the text. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, Mark 6, 45, and go ahead of him. He's just done the feeding miracle. To the other side, to Bethsaida. This is probably a different Bethsaida than <clears throat> the one mentioned at the feeding, while he himself was sending the multitude away. So the disciples are heading into another storm in the book of Mark. Early Christian artists used the image of the disciples in the boat facing the storm as symbols of the early church. In fact, there's a lot of paintings that reflect this, and it shows the disciples in a little boat, and there's a storm, and this was the, the idea of the church, it became an image of the church on a voyage, and that's what you and I are on right now. We say, we say the Christian life is a walk, or sometimes we say it's a marathon, but it's also a voyage, because walking on land is pretty predictable for me. On the sea, different deal, because the sea is unpredictable. You kind of sometimes have to just go with the way that the things are blowing on the sea. On the land, I feel a little bit better a little bit more sure of my footsteps. So the Christian life may be more apt to describe it as being in a boat on the sea. Sometimes the waters are calm. 
Sometimes the voyage is very bumpy and windy and unpredictable. And we're wondering, am I going to get to the intended destination? So he makes them get into the boat. This particular force of the language means they didn't want to get in. They wanted to stay. Uh, Maybe they wanted to kick back for a while. Maybe they they looked at the Lord and said, Lord, you said we were going to come here to rest. We have not gotten a rest yet. We want to stay. The language is almost indicative of children who are having a good time somewhere and don't want to get in the car to leave. And you say, get in the car. And they're like, daddy, daddy. That kind of thing. But he makes them get into the boat. He made them go on ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. How did he send them away? Full and not empty. Years ago, I was sitting in my office at a previous location and a young man came in. He was a salesman and he was selling something. And so I gave him a Pastor Michael line. I said, I'll listen to your pitch if you'll listen to mine. He went, okay. So I think he was selling copiers or something like that. So he went through his his spiel and I told him, no, I'm not going to buy that. (laughs) But then I shared the gospel with him and I said, do you go to church? And he said, oh, I, I... Recently attended this church, and he named a church that many of you would know the name of it. It's a big building with a lot of glass in Orange County. (laughs) So anyway, he goes, I hadn't been to church in years, and uh, somebody invited me, so I went to the church, and I said, well, what was your experience there? And he said, well, they interviewed some star, and they sang some songs, and listen to this. This was the words out of the mouth of this young man. I left there empty and not full. And I said, it's no wonder you did. They didn't preach anything. All they did was try, and you may think I'm trying to be hard, but I'm not. I'm just telling the truth. All they really did was make it about entertainment instead of what that young man needed. He needed God's word. And so he said, out of his own lips, I left there empty. I'm like, wow, that should never happen. When someone walks into a church. So Jesus made them get into the boat. And after bidding them farewell, look at 46, he departed to the mountain to pray. Jesus went up the mountain to pray. They went on to the sea. Jesus said in Luke 22, 31, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Listen to these words. And you... When once you have turned again, when you have turned back, NIV, this is Luke 22, 32, when you have returned to me, New King James, strengthen your brothers. The Lord prayed for Peter. The Lord is our great intercessor. He ever lives, Hebrews 7, 25, to make what? Intercession for his people. What does that mean? Well, there's a little debate among theologians Is his intercession simply his finished work at the cross and his resurrection? Maybe. But I also think his intercession includes advocating for us before the Father, giving us help. This is true in Hebrews 4. It says we go to a throne of grace to find help when? In time of need. He's available to you and I when we have need. And I don't know about you, but I'm a very needy person. I keep discovering this more and more. This particular picture, he himself goes up to pray alone. Matthew 14, 23 says he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. It's a beautiful picture of the church and your and my life. Jesus is up there in heaven praying for us, available to us. And we're on the sea below, but we're never out of his sight. But you say, well, then why do we go through stuff? Because molding and shaping happens where? In the storm. This is where we go back to your hand raise, right? The Lord knows that we grow in the storm. And so some trials become necessary. Peter, who will be a prominent person in the story, writes this in 1 Peter. Go to the back of your New Testament, 1 Peter 1. He's talking about the testing of your faith, and he says these words. This is 1 Peter 1, 3. 
He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. 1 Peter 1.3 To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1.5 Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in these facts that you're saved and your salvation is secure, in this you greatly rejoice, verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Would you all turn to Psalm 107? The Psalms are a beautiful place to go when you're going through hard times and when you just need some encouragement. Psalm 107. Many of the Psalms go through the history of Israel. And they depict the good, the bad, and the ugly. Psalm 107 is such a psalm. Here's what it says. I'm just going to hit a few highlights. Psalm 107, look at verse 4. It says of Israel, They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. Psalm 107, 4. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Psalm 107, verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. Skip down to verse uh, 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still. So the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. He let, and then it says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let's go back to the Gospel of Mark. How many times has he guided you? How many times have you wondered if he's there and all of a sudden something happens and you get to the desired haven? Not in your time. That's our problem, right? We want it now. We, we get a storm for 15 minutes and we say, all right, Lord, that's enough. None of us enjoy storms. None of us want to be in the storm but Jesus made them get into the boat. He, get this, sent them into the storm. You're like, what? Come on now, that doesn't fit with my theology. Well, you better let it fit. Because <laughs> that's what he did. He sent them into the storm. And you're going to see that they're rowing against the wind. And had they turned the boat around and gone the opposite way, opposite his will, they would have had the wind at their backs. Sometimes when the winds are against us, we say, well, this must not be God's will. You know, water in your eyes. You know, maybe I'm doing something wrong here. You're, you know, you got the wind blowing hair, like uh, Back to the Future, Doc and Back to the Future. But you know what? Oftentimes when you're straining against the wind, you're right where God wants you. You say, why? I thought the Bible said God won't give you any more than you can handle. Where'd you read that? Well, in the verse you just quoted, Pastor Michael, no, that's not what it says. It says that God will provide a way of escape when you're tempted. It doesn't say he won't test you. The whole Bible's filled with tests. We did our first radio program on the Bible Answer Show. And I think one of the first questions we got was, will God give you any more than you can handle? Question mark. Oh, I couldn't wait to answer the question. Because <laughs> I've written an article on it, and I've shared this with you guys before. That article that's on the web right now gets 500 to 1,000 hits a week. Will God give me any more than I can handle? Question mark. Well, ask the disciples about this storm when you get into heaven. Ask Moses if the Israelites were more than he could handle. Ask Gideon if 300 men against thousands was more than he could handle. 
Ask the Apostle Paul if the beatings and the shipwrecks that he faced was more than he could handle. Do you understand, folks? This is something that's become a sanctified saying in the Christian church, and it's just absolutely false. God will often give you more than you can handle, so you, can, you will give the handle of your life to him. That's the whole Bible tells this story. The whole Bible really says to us that when you come to the end of yourself, that's when God begins. When you stop trying to do it on your own. You say, well, that, but that makes me feel weak. Well, whose power you want, yours or God's? Look, you can still be a man, but you're gonna have additional power from your creator, and I think that's a pretty awesome thing, personally. And so when it was evening, Mark 6, 47, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them, mark that in your Bibles, Mark 6, 48, he saw them, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and this is <laughs> quite a statement, and he intended to pass by them. All right, let's park there for a second. It's night, he sees them in the midst of the sea, he's alone on the land praying, we already saw that. They're straining at the oars. The word straining is quite a word in Greek. It's botsenizo. <clears throat> it's a word that literally means in Greek to torture and detest. Here's the literal rendering. To test by rubbing on the touchstone. Listen to this from one Greek lexicon. It's a word that means to test metals by the touchstone, which is a black siliceous stone used to test the purity of gold or silver by the color of the streak Produced on it by rubbing it with either metal. That's what God was doing. And they were straining at the oars. And since it was the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came, he let them strain at the oars for six to eight hours. That's a long time. And they were straining and they were fighting against the wind. And many of them, maybe like ancient Israel, were saying something like this. Let's turn back. I don't know what the discussion was like in those six to eight hours, but you could imagine it was a whole plethora of discussion, including this, where is he? He said, let's go over to the other side. He stayed behind. We're in the storm. What's going on? You ever been there before? God, where are you? Well, he saw what they were going through. They were never out of his sight and neither are you. But when I'm going through storms, man, sometimes I feel all alone. John 6, 18 says, the, the sea began to be stirred up. A strong wind was blowing in a parallel account. Matthew 14, 24 says, the boat was being battered by the waves. The wind was contrary against the wind. <laughs> That's how life feels oftentimes. Beat up, things are stirred up. And we're like, Lord, let's be honest, where are you? Where are you? In fact, it would appear from the fourth watch of the night uh, language, which if you look back at verse uh, 48, it says, he saw them straining at the oars and at about the fourth watch of the night, that's just for your notes, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's a long night after not getting rest because the people ran ahead of them and they had no time to rest and now... It's three, four, five, maybe six in the morning. And they're done. They're done. Exhausted, poured out, question marks looming. You've probably been there before. I can't row one more inch. I'm done. Where are you? One writer says, the very waves that distressed them became the path of his feet. So transcending was his power, his feet upon the waves bespoke his familiarity with their plight. He not only sees, but he enters into the human struggle. In fact, he will walk upon the waves and get out of your mind some placid ocean where Jesus is walking on, you know, a clear glassy lake. That's not the picture here. The waves are huge. He's walking on top of the waves, defying gravity. You say, how could he do that? Uh, he's God. 
He made gravity. If he wants to suspend the law of gravity, he can. And he did. And people are always trying to find naturalistic explanations. Maybe there was a rocky path across the... No. Or people say, the, the Egyptian army, that, that story of the Exodus can't be true. Where they crossed, they crossed in only two feet of water. Uh, we found the spot. Okay, well then the greater miracles, how the whole Egyptian army drowned in two feet of water. Yeah. And then it says, he intended to pass them by. And there are some scholars who have pointed out that the language probably goes back to the meeting of Moses with God on the mount on Sinai when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my face and live, but I will pass by you and I will show you the back parts of my glory, if you will. You will behold my beauty, but you will not see my face and live. And some scholars have pointed out that when the Lord moved past Moses, he began to proclaim the name of the Lord. This is Exodus 34, 6. It says, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's the Lord. In fact, the Greek language here may be more accurate to say he, desi he desired to come near or alongside them. The Greek word uh, can have the idea to pass by, but it can also have the idea of wanting to come near. But this combination of thoughts means that it appears he wanted them to call upon him. You know, sometimes when you're in the midst of the storm, God is nearer than you think, but he does want you to do what? To call upon him. To recognize who he is and say, Lord, I need your help. I'm going to stop trying to do this on my own. And so they strained. But when they saw him, 49, walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. And they cried out. Jesus apparently was moving quite rapidly. I don't know if he's breaking any speed records on the sea, but I would imagine so. And remember, there, this, this particular body of water is, what, seven, eight miles wide. And so he came quickly upon them. They were in the midst of the sea, so they had rowed maybe three to four miles. So he comes, like, racing along, and they... You know, imagine, put yourself there for a second. You've got the, the spray in your face. You're exhausted. You think you're going to die. And all of a sudden, you see the shadowy figure racing toward the boat. And the Greek word here is a phantasma. It's, uh, the, in the Jewish mind, the sea was something unpredictable, dark, maybe even something that Satan controlled. And then you see what you think is maybe like a, this water ghost or, you know, even they might have been thinking this is, this is death. Death has come to seal our fate, to drown us, to turn our ship over. In fact, in the early frescoes of the church, uh, they, this was such a part of the, the idea of the voyage of faith that they called the inner sanctuary that you're sitting in right now the nave, which connects to the, uh, the part of a ship. So this is how life is. And they're freaked out, and they said, It's a ghost! We're dead! Look at verse 49. They supposed they'd see, seen a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage. This is emphatic. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I is ego e me in Greek. I'm going to read from one commentary. It says, when Jesus perceived the terror of the disciples, he allayed their fears and corrected their delusion with a summons to courage. The emphatic I in verse 50 can be understood as a normal statement. It's me. It's me, Jesus. It is I. But it can also have a deeper significance. As the recognized formula of self-revelation, which rests ultimately on I am that I am from Exodus 3.14. Not only the immediate context of the walking upon the water, but the words with which the emphatic I is framed favor a theophany, the admonitions to take heart, to have no fear, which introduce and conclude them, I am here, is an 
integral part of the divine formula. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, many times God says, don't be afraid, I am with you. Be of good courage, I am with you. I will not forsake you, I will not fail you. Be of good courage, Courage. read Joshua chapter one, you'll see it all over that chapter. Don't be afraid. Two verses for you. Isaiah 41, 13 says, I am the Lord your God who upholds you Uphold your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Isaiah 43, 1 says, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And he comes walking on the sea. But everybody turn to the book of Job. Job is just before the Psalms. Everybody know the story of Job? Oh, yeah. How many of you have read the book of Job? We tend to read that book when we're going through hard times. So let me see what happened to Job. <laughs> Maybe this will put things into perspective. Job 9, look at verse 8. Some, some believe that Jesus walking on the sea is alluded to in Job 9. Look at verse 8. It says, Who alone, and this is Job is talking in, in the beginning of chapter 9. <clears throat> and he says, verse 8, Who alone stretches out the heavens, and what does he do? He tramples down the waves of the sea. And then look at verse 11. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Job says, Go back to Mark and we'll finish it. Where are you in my trouble? And Jesus answers the question. I am here. Don't be afraid. Be of good courage. Do you know the difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world? The God of the Bible entered into our pain. He entered into our storm. In fact, he's on his way to a cross. When he's teaching faith lessons, you must remember... He is on his way to die for the sins of these men and the entire world. This is not cliche. He's not just doing this to do it. He's shaping and molding them to carry the message of hope. And he's doing the same in you and me. Are you one of his messengers? Are you telling people about the hope? Look, I don't understand every storm that happens in this world. This is a nutty world, it's crazy. But the one thing that I can give to people about my faith is to tell them there's something better coming. There's a God who can even redeem your circumstances, your immediate circumstances for good. You may not always see it, but that's what God does. And so had they turned around, the wind would have been at their backs, but then what would they have discovered? And so Jesus came near the boat. When they saw him, 49... Walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, and he gives that beautiful encouragement. Take courage. Some of you need to mark this this morning. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid anymore. You know, this was the, perhaps the darkest part of the night, and Jesus came to them as light in the night. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. Everybody know whose thoughts are behind the Gospel of Mark? Who's the one that's largely responsible for the Gospel of Mark? It's Peter. Scholars agree that it, Mark is kind of penning the thoughts of Peter. And some of you who are got your thinking caps on right now have noticed that there's something missing. Because a particular incident occurred here that is not mentioned in what we might call Peter's gospel. And here's what happened. Amidst the fear and thinking it was some sort of phantasma, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, remember, bid me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter put a leg. How many of you would do this? I mean, even if Jesus told you to, would you? We're all, we all batter on Peter. Peter, man, he sunk. He sunk. If he just kept his eyes on Jesus. Oh, we all know that. But how many of you would have put your leg over? 
Only one of the 12 did that. And he was walking on water. And he's the only other person besides Jesus in history that I know of that did this. And he was walking. It was quite a moment. Can you imagine being Peter? Yeah. Wow. And remember, it's not calm yet. Peter may be the first Jewish surfer in history. I don't know. Walking on the waves, walking above the storm, walking above my problems, fixed my eyes on Jesus. Yeah. But then Peter began to look around. I think he had a realization like, what? Have you ever been there before? What am I doing? You ever done that in ministry before? You've taken a step of faith. Maybe you're speaking to a group of people and there's an inner voice saying to you, what are you doing? You can't be this guy. You're going to drown. So Peter looked around and he began to sink. Lord, save me. Jesus grabs him. Man, I hope there's video footage in heaven of this, don't you? So many stories I want to see. And they got into the boat and Jesus said to him, Oh, you a little faith, why did you doubt? See, do you see what's going on here? This is a faith lesson. What if you're one of the 11 watching this? I was going to get out too. I was. <laughs> he beat me to it. Yeah. Seems like there's very few people taking steps of faith in our generation, seeing if the Lord might meet them there. So many of us are afraid. We let fear dictate so much. Is that because we don't believe? You know, the Israelites were getting ready to cross the Jordan and the priests had the Ark of the Covenant. And God said, I will part this river and you will go into my promises. But first the priests must step into the Jordan. And we're told in Joshua that the Jordan was at flood stage. What that means is that the first step was not just like a lot of us like. Let's see what the water's like. Hmm. Is it 85? If it's 85, I go in. But if it's not, <laughs> it's like, what? So the nation is not going to experience the glory, the power, the miracle until they step in. And the priests are told, you're going to do it. What if you're the front guy carrying the ark that day? That's when you say to your buddy in the back, hey, didn't I do the dishes last night? The first step is over your head. I like, I like a step that's up to my ankle. And here's the deal. Unless God parts the river, you're going down. You think he's going to let his ark go down with you? His ark represents his presence. And the miracle occurred. Did Peter intentionally leave this out? Well, the scriptures are breathed by God, so they're the product of the Holy Spirit. Mark 6, 52. We'll, we'll, we're going to end with this verse. But you can see Peter's humanity come out. You know, maybe part of him wanted that story to be known, but part of him didn't. Because it was a great act of faith, but then it was a great disappointment. But the beauty is that when God honors Peter... And like so many people in the stories of faith, he doesn't remember our blunders. He remembers who we are. Peter's the preacher in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts who changes the world. He's walking on top of the storms now. He won't back down even when the religious leaders say, be quiet. He says, no, I'm going to obey God rather than you. And then verse 52 says, for they, the 12 had not gained any insight, that's a powerful phrase, from the incident of the loaves of the feeding of the 5,000, but their heart was hardened. What was this storm all about? Well, the disciples weren't doing too well. In fact, the Bible says here they, their hearts were hard. Isn't that an amazing statement? That seems to me to show that you can be walking along as a Christian and still have layers of your heart that are kind of stony. 
And God said to Israel, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I will soften your heart. I will put my spirit within you. But all of us recognize that sometimes this is a problem in us. We get hard to the things of God. We let things pound on us and build up against our faith. The Greek word for hard means to petrify. It means to callous. Baseball players, sometimes when they start spring training, some of them who don't want to wear batting gloves, they, they will develop calluses on their hands and they'll, they'll take BP, batting practice, and they'll keep hitting the ball until they develop calluses on their hands and those calluses grow over and it becomes insensitive to the, the bat and no longer bothers them. And they have to go through pain to do it, but then eventually those calluses build up and there's a, there's a hard layer there. And Mark 6, 52 says that's, that was the disciples' hearts. And I had to ask myself this question this week. Is that mine? Is that yours? See, they hadn't gained any insight into what? Into who Jesus was. Everybody turn to Matthew 14 and we're done. The classic uh, gentleman if we can call him that, who had a hard heart, was Pharaoh, Matthew 14. And he hardened his heart, and he would not listen, and he hardened his heart. And that's one explanation for a hard heart, is you don't want to listen, you don't want to believe. So let's pick up the story, Matthew 14, 32. So right after, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith to Peter, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. I want you to notice what happens now. Matthew 14, 33. And those who were in the boat, what did they do? They worshiped him and they said, For, or you are what? Certainly God's son. The first storm, they said, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And now they say, you are certainly God's son. Later, uh, Peter would confess, you are the holy one of God. You are God's son. You are the Christ. Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Did Peter just come to that? No. Peter learned that. How? Through storms. Whitfield says, all trials are sent for two ends, that we may be better acquainted with the Lord Jesus and with our own wicked hearts. Oswald Chambers said, if you're going to be used by God, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you more useful in his hands, close quote. And all of a sudden, they begin to worship him. And by the way, the whole Bible is filled with this. You don't worship anybody except who? God. Jesus is God. He's worshiped many times in the New Testament. And he doesn't say to the apostles right there, oh, no, 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 boys, get up. Don't worship me. The Jehovah's Witnesses would have us believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Wrong. He's God. Angels do not receive worship, although a fallen angel wants worship. His name is Satan. But Jesus received the worship. And they said, certainly you are the son of God. And the purpose of the trial or the storm was so that they would get it and realize with certainty that he is who he said he is. Do you believe that? Do I? I've got to be reminded all the time. And sometimes it is when I go through a storm that I see him most plainly. Paul Claudel said, Christ did not come to do away with suffering. He did not come to even fully explain it, but he did come to fill it with his presence. Would you bow with me? Lord, as we look at this message, Big Waves and Hard Hearts, we, we see your purposes. We don't, frankly, always like them, but we know that they produce. Some of them are simply, Peter says, necessary for a little while. And sometimes when we're in the midst of the storm, we feel like it's never going to end. But Lord, we can take courage that in the fourth watch of the night, you come. You come when we are exhausted, when we feel like we can't do it for another second. And when, we, when our natural strength is depleted, <laughs> you have us right where you want us. 
Because the Christian life is not about doing things in our strength. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And sometimes you have to allow us to be drained so that we can see who it is that fills us. So Lord, I want to pray over this precious congregation. Pray over all the dads right now. Pray that we would lead our children to reliance upon the resources of heaven. We would be men, men of courage, men of strength. But we would say, like those of old, my strength comes from the Lord. Some of the greatest characters of history, Moses and Elijah and others, they had that power. That strength was even perfected in their weakness. Because Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? Maybe you're poured out and at the end of yourself. Maybe your heart's been hard. The Lord's been showing you some things in this message. With your head bowed, you have to decide. Do you want him to be your Lord? Or do you want to be your own Lord? You can't serve two masters. If you want him to be your Lord, if you've seen a fresh vision of who he is and you want to say, yes, Jesus, direct my boat to the destinations that you have for me, he'll get you there. It may not always be easy, but he'll get you there. And one day he's going to get you to heaven because he's blazed the path in his blood. That's how much he loves you. So if you want to decide today, to confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. It's something like this. And right now, don't let anything keep you from this decision. If you need to rededicate your life, the prayer can be very similar. And it's this. Lord Jesus, pray it out loud if it's you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my hard heart. Cleanse me of my sin. Lord, I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead. I believe you are God. Jesus, I believe that you can change me from the inside out. And I repent of my sin. And I receive you as my Lord. Please change me from the inside out. Cleanse me of my sin, my rebellion. And help me to walk with you. And steer my ship in this voyage of life. Lord, for those who have cried out in their hearts, may you bless them, may you strengthen them, and may you... Pour your Holy Spirit and pour it out and fill us with your presence afresh, with your goodness, with your love, with your mercy. And give us grateful hearts for all that you are. And for those who are in the storm right now, may you calm these waters for them, Lord, and assure them of who you are. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you stand? <laughs>